This week in Canada, a controversy has erupted around the National Arts Centre's plans to reserve an upcoming theatre performance for Black audience members only. With many questioning why any organization would want to open the door for racial segregation in any form. It is the latest example of a movement that, as my guest on today's program argues, presents itself as progressive, when in fact, its ideas are deeply regressive. Andrew Doyle is a British broadcaster, writer, and comedian. He initially shot to fame with his satirical Twitter account, Tatiana McGrath, but has since become well-known for hosting the GB News show, Free Speech Nation. His latest book is The New Puritans, How the Religion of Social Justice Captured the Western World. Andrew Doyle is my guest today on Lean Out. Andrew, welcome back to Lean Out. Thank you for having me. Really nice to have you back on. And I'm really excited to talk about this book. I love that its aim, that its central hope is that it will be obsolete in 10 years. That we'll look back on this period and wonder that it even happened. Um, For listeners who may not have read it yet, let's start by defining terms. Who are the New Puritans and and what are their chief tenets? So the phrase itself, the New Puritans, is an, uh, an attempt to make accessible what has proved to be quite an inaccessible sprawling ideology with with sort of many different strands to it but we all sort of recognize what what i mean by that insofar as we're dealing with a a mindset that has become quite commonplace amongst activists who call themselves social justice activists largely or intersectional activists and the mindset is one of a kind of prohibitionist and precisionist tendency a puritanical tendency if you like they have um, a sensorial quality they believe that they should be able to control language and they have a belief that if they can just stop people from saying the words they don't want them to say, that they can re-engineer, reshape society in the way that they want to. I suppose you would see them, uh, they're often called culture warriors, but I suppose you'd describe them as cultural revolutionaries, really, because what they're after is a complete refashioning of society, a kind of year zero approach to history, uh, hence their sort of tendency to want to tear down statues of what they call problematic past figures uh, their tendency to want to uh, eliminate certain books from bookshelves, to revise books and texts, and even outright revisionism of his history. We saw that with the 1619 project, which of course was so inaccurate that even even its own fact checker flagged the problems. And yet it won the the Pulitzer, didn't it? So the institutions have become so captured by this ideology that it means that we have what is called a legitimation crisis. We can't trust authority figures anymore because. This is a movement that is now dominating all of our major artistic institutions, cultural institutions, journalistic institutions, law enforcement, judiciary, the army even, certainly government and certainly the civil service over here in the UK, certainly the Democratic Party in in America, uh, and certainly the Canadian government. So you see, it's incredibly powerful. And the reason I call them the New Puritans is because I think we can make sense of this if we draw an analogy with religion. Because a lot of the tenets of this movement are essentially faith-based. You know, the idea that the binary sex differences of uh, between men and women that we all know about and scientists have known about for many decades and many hundreds of years is just wrong. They have a belief in what they call systemic discrimination. They can identify systemic racism, systemic homophobia, systemic transphobia, even when there is no evidence to support it. That is not to say that those things cannot exist. 
but they it's a serious allegation which requires evidence but not if you're one of the new puritans because for them to simply make the assertion is the truth and i draw the comparison with specifically the puritanism of the of uh, of new england in the 17th century we're talking about uh, salem the 1690s we're talking about what happened in that small god-fearing community uh, these were decent people these were people who uh, did not go around hunting witches or burning people at the stake for being witches this was an aberration it lasted a little little over a year mm. but the key point about it is that the the girls in the community the little girls who started saying they saw witches everywhere nothing would have happened had the adults in the room just said no you're not telling the truth or no, this is not real. The reason why it went so far is because of the magistrates, the ministers, the elites, in other words, capitulating to the screams of the children. And I see that as a very clear analogy to what's going on now. When you see all these mad pink haired activists online screaming, which, well, they often use the for the phrase turf. Sometimes they'll, they'll scream racist, fascist, Nazi, and they just scream these things out without any evidence or cause to do so. And that wouldn't matter if we just ignored them. But unfortunately, people in government, politicians, journalists, commentators, teachers, university lecturers all say, yes, you're right. We'll go along with what you're saying. And that's the that's the problem here. And I, I very specifically mentioned that in the case of Salem, the girls' prosecutions were all secured on what they called spectral evidence. And we call that lived experience because there's no evidence for it. The girls just said that they saw the devil in the shadows. They saw witches and their spectral evidence was enough to have people hanged. Just as today, the lived experience of someone who claims that an institution is racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic or whatever is sufficient to see the accuser, the accused damned in the public eye, what we call uh, cancel culture. So the, the, there are many, many, many parallels. But what I'm not doing is saying that uh, the Puritans of old were in any way similar to the new Puritans, because the Puritans of old had a very clear sense of their own fallibility, their own unworthiness before God. They didn't know if they were elect or if they were damned according to their belief system. They were continually doubting themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, the movement that we call the new Puritans, they speak with such utter certainty. All you have to do is read some of their articles or books or even their tweets. And it's never really occurred to these people that they could be wrong. And they're certainly not open to discussion or dialogue or reason. Um, and that's why I wrote the book to try and make sense of a movement that describes itself in these incredibly progressive terms, it calls itself progressive for one thing, when it's actually very regressive, it calls itself liberal when it's very illiberal, it talks about social justice when it works against social justice, it talks about anti-racism when it's actually promoting racial division. In other words, the words that this movement uses to describe itself are more often than not the precise opposite of what they should be. And that makes it very difficult for people to tackle because they've used these Trojan horse terms, because no one wants to be said to be opposed to an anti-racist movement, because mm -hmm. why would you be? You know, we're all against racism, so surely we're all anti-racist. But of course, to be truly anti-racist, you have to be opposed to what they call anti-racism. It's very complicated. Mm -hmm. And what I really learned from writing the book is that really the culture war is about language. It's about who gets to control the definitions of words. And we are at the moment losing that war because we've allowed these people to seize far too much control when it comes to, to that area. Sorry, I blabbed on a bit, but I was trying to describe the basic points of the, of the book. Maybe I've said too much there. 
No, no, it's super helpful. And and the book itself is is very helpful. Last time we talked, I was still trying to unpack this ideology, even though I was immersed in it. I found it very confusing, as you say, because it presents itself as one thing, which is the opposite of what it is. And its branding is, I mean, who would be against social justice? Yeah. But also because its ideas come from academia and are quite complicated and have a long history. And I want to just touch on that briefly. So um, you identify this ideology as critical social justice. Some people call it woke. The terms for what it is are disputed, which makes it harder to debate. But uh, going with critical social justice, can you just briefly unpack for listeners what the roots of this ideology actually are? Well, the word critical in that phrase, critical social justice, is a nod towards critical theory, which is a kind of academic movement, a postmodern movement, uh, upon which a lot of this stuff draws. So that's a quite helpful distinction between what we call social justice, which is, I suppose, what we've traditionally understood as sort of standing up for oppressed individuals and the oppressed classes. You know, you would say that uh, Les Miserables is a novel that addresses the problems of social injustice. But critical social justice is different. It means that you perceive oppression and privilege through the lens of critical theory. And this is not the same thing as what Victor Hugo was doing in Les Miserables, where you can identify someone who's poor and starving and living on the street and having to sell their own teeth to uh, save their daughter's life. You know, it's a very different thing from the way the uh, critical social justice activists seek and define oppression. In other words, they see it everywhere. I suppose you would describe this as what happened in the late 1980s, which uh, we call the postmodern, applied postmodern, uh, applied postmodernism, which is when the postmodern theorists, which derive from the, I suppose, the uh, the French post-structuralists of the 1960s and 70s, people like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, but it developed from that and moved out beyond that. And by the time you get to 1989, we weren't just theorizing anymore. You know, these are people who believe that there was no reality beyond which the language with, with which we construct reality. In other words, everything is related to language. By the time we get to 1989, those theories have become applied. In other words, the, the academics start saying, well, we have this theory about the world that everything is constructed through language. Our understanding of life is all about language. So let's now apply our theories and try and change society. And that was the key sort of turning point. And uh, now, three decades later, You have the critical social justice movement, uh, which is only sort of tenuously linked to the French post-structuralist I mentioned, but it is applying these ideas in society very, very deliberately. Critical race theory is a very good example. You know, critical race theory started out in the 80s as a sort of a legal framework with with which to attempt to understand how it was that um, racism still exists in a society in which racial discrimination has has been legislated against which is a very noble thing to do. But the critical race theory as it currently operates is about applying these theories in a practical sense, and particularly in schools. You know, critical race theory has really grabbed hold of education. So when you hear these people talking about how it's just a, a niche academic legal discipline, that's a lie. And there are there are multiple books and articles about critical race theory in education and how it ought to be applied. And they're easily you know found on Google. So uh, that lie doesn't really sustain itself for very long. But you'll note what happens when critical race theory is applied as opposed to simply theorized about. You get like, for instance, in the American school in London, which is the most expensive day school in the UK, you have children segregated by skin color for after school activities. That is the upshot of critical race theory. It is this idea that we should see everything first and foremost through the prism of race. 
And the logical endpoint of that is segregation. You had it in California at the Brentwood School where parents were segregated by skin colour for after school discussion sessions with teachers. This stuff has actual implications once it is applied. A critical social justice is the notion that there are there are a few sort of the elect, a sort of I suppose you call them the new clergy, social justice activists, in other words, who are uniquely qualified to detect power structures, the power structures that dominate society, that exist throughout every strata of society, and they are uniquely able to detect them, much like I suppose a high priest being able to detect an evil spirit, and then beyond that not just simply to detect it, but to actually change society in order order to address it. You've got a lot of these high priests effectively changing society in accordance with their own visions and dreams. And that's why it doesn't really make sense to many of us. You know, you see these people sort of implementing all of these anti-racist policies in the institutions where there is no problem with racism. And you're thinking, well, why are you doing this? And 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 making, making those institutions more racist when they do so. So it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. And that's also why I wanted to write the book and talk through all the linguistic minefields mm-hmm. because people are confused. People are confused about, you know, they, we all want to be considered progressive and for equal rights. And so a movement that proclaims to be championing all of those things feels like our natural bedfellows, but actually they're not. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you make this critique in public, as you have, as I have, is you get called a Nazi as you shared an anecdote of a friend of yours. Um, in a bar calling you a Nazi, despite the fact that he'd known you a long time and knows that your values are actually in opposition to everything that Nazis stand for. Um, The other thing is to characterize this as right wing. Um, You come from the left. Can you break down for our listeners why this new Puritan movement is in no way legitimately leftist? I suppose it's a hysterical move. I mean, this kind of thing you're describing there is, is a kind of hysteria you know, these people who call each other, who call other people Nazis or fascists or whatever, at the slightest point of political disagreement, they can only do that if they're sort of, if they're sort of engaged in a hysteria. I do believe that they mean it. I do believe that they they think that there are all these demons in the shadows and that what we now call Nazis or fascists or whatever. But if, if, if they were to stop for a moment, apply some critical thinking, talk, you know, think about what, what does it mean to be a Nazi? What are the values that that person represents? They would see that all of these people that they're dismissing as such are nothing of the kind. But like I say, as with all extremist religions and fundamentalist religions, critical thinking has to go out of the window to sustain the faith. And certainly reason goes out of the window as well. And that's what's happened here. That's why you get intelligent people, people in academe who have fallen for this stuff, because no one is immune, not even the most intelligent among us, as is the case with all hysteria. When it comes to left and right, I just think left and right doesn't really mean anything when it comes to the culture war. I mean, this is why a lot of good, decent people have been tricked, have been duped into supporting these regressive ideas, because it comes packaged as a left wing thing. And a lot of people for a long time liked to think that being on the left was synonymous with being virtuous or being good. And they want to be on the, quote, right side of history. Yeah. So so when a movement comes along calling itself left wing, well, they feel they, they can sort of dovetail nicely with that. But of course... I argue in the book that it's not left-wing in any meaningful sense, because I think in order to be left-wing, you have to be concerned with class. You have to be concerned with economic inequality and how to redress that. And yet the the doyads of the social justice movement, as it currently stands, have no interest in working class people. And in fact, often demonize them as being part of the problem. They've no interest in social mobility. They've no interest in, in money, in class, in all of those traditional leftist ideas. They have replaced money and class with group identity. Mm-hmm. And of course, that means they often end up championing 
very middle class people and middle class concerns. Um, so I think it's a complete misnomer to even approach the idea of the culture war from a left right perspective. I have friends on the left and I have friends on the right and uh, I have friends on both sides of this political aisle who agree on this fundamental point that the, the critical social justice movement has to be stopped because it is illiberal. You know, we can go back to arguing about, you know, the, the, you know, the best way to to improve society politically, you know, either through the welfare state or through trickle down economics, you know, whatever position you want to take on the left and right divide or the traditional left, right ideas, but they have nothing to do with the culture war. I mean, the culture war has escalated in the past 12 years, beyond out of control. And all of that has happened in the UK under a right wing government, under the conservative government. It doesn't matter if you vote in left or if you, you vote in right. So powerful is the critical social justice movement. So powerful are the new Puritans. That you'll they'll always be in power. Doesn't matter who you vote for. You can't vote them out, and that's why we've got to get beyond this idea of thinking in terms of left and right, mm-hmm. and not really worrying if people dismiss you as right wing. I mean, what does that even mean? I've been dismissed as right wing all the time. Firstly, I don't think there's anything wrong with being right wing. I think it's a, a different way of looking at the world than having a left wing perspective, all of which has merit and all of which is worthy of discussion. So I don't see it as a slur. I know it's intended to be a slur, but I don't see it that way. It's factually inaccurate. I'm not factually on the right. My views, if you were to write them down and uh, analyze them in terms of traditional left-right values, they just don't, they're just not right-wing values. So it's inaccurate. Uh, but if you want to call me that, that's fine. doesn't bother me. But what it, what it does suggest is that it's just further testament to the point that left and right are useful, useless designations when it comes to tackling this cultural problem. And another useless designation that you draw attention to is the idea that this is a generational war. Um, you know, that I hear this quite often, that this is about older people not being able to evolve with the times. Why is that not the case? Older people always struggle to with change. There isn't anyone among us who is immune to that, apart from the ones of us who die young. You know, we will all struggle as thing, as we get older and we see things that are very different to how we remember them. And that's natural and normal and not really to be feared, in my view, and can be quite funny in, in, in many ways. This isn't what's happening here. Uh, what's happening here is we are going backwards. This movement is taking people backwards. This is a reactionary movement that considers itself to be progressive. This is a conformist movement that considers itself to be radical. And so therefore, and most importantly, they've mistaken change for progress. Things are changing but they're not progressing, they're regressing. So, uh, and furthermore, and really the key point is that resistance to this ideology is predominant in all generations. So the estimates vary. A study by the More in Common Initiative in the UK placed it at roughly 13%. 13% of the population would be subscribing to these woke ideas, critical social justice ideas, but that means they're a minority in every single generation, and they are. It is true that you'll find more adherence to this ideology among younger generations, but you still won't find a majority among younger generations. So it just simply isn't the case that this is a generational divide. And I would say, from my experience, my lived experience, if you like, the most <laughs> the, the, the most hostility I've experienced has been from people from my generation and, and the academics, you know, the people in power at the moment are my generation, not, mm-hmm. not, not, not Generation Z. So... And and they tend to be the most vehement. Um, so and some of the most vocal opponents of this movement are in their twenties. Some of the most vehement defenders of this movement are, you know, they're, they're in 
sheltered housing, they've got mortgages that, you know, whatever, they're, 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 they're getting on. So it's not the case that this is just an inevitable sort of progress. This is a one of those many glitches that you get throughout history. You know, I don't believe in this idea of uh, this teleological view of history where we get, we're, we're inevitably, you know, veering in the right direction and things are getting better and better and better. There are all sorts of examples where things go backwards. To give the example of Iran is very obvious. You know, it's absolutely clear that post-revolution Iran is a is a more backwards place than pre-revolution Iran. I mean, it's fine if you're an Islamic fundamentalist who thinks that thinks that women ought to be sheltered and put in home and wrapped up and, and not being permitted to think, dance, or talk or anything like that. But that's not progress, in, in my view. Mm-hmm. When I was reading the parts about race in this book, I was thinking about there's a recent example here in Canada. The National Arts Centre has announced uh, that for Black History Month, there is this performance and there is one night dedicated to only Black people in the audience. And um, that this idea of racial segregation somehow being progressive and someone pointed out on Twitter, well, what will mixed race couples do? (laughs) Will they go to the performance? I mean, this stuff is wild. Well, they have a simplistic binary understanding of the world. And, you know, we had the same thing in this country. We had a, a, what they call a resisting whiteness conference where the organisers said that only non-white people were able to participate in the question and answer session afterwards. And again, where does that leave mixed race people? Where does that somewhat leave someone who's half white, half Asian, for instance? Do they do they get to speak in a whisper or something? How does that work? No, no one sort of, sort of determined what goes on there. And this is so regressive because... We know that, you know, for all these talks of social constructs, that is something that can be applied to race. We know that these racial taxonomies were constructed. There are no significant differences between us as human beings. We know that ever since we decoded the, ge- the human genome, there is no cause to for segregation. But that's what they're pushing for. And this is also why I go back to this point of it not being a generational thing, because people much, much older than me fought against segregation and fought fought against racism. And now they're having to come out of retirement and do it all over again. And we see it again with gay rights and women's rights. You know, there's a lot of feminists now because of the gender identity ideology, which is part of this critical social justice movement. It's an integral part of it. You know, this is a movement that is coming out and basically undoing all of the work of of feminism (laughs) for many, many years and gay rights for many, many years. Gay rights was fought and secured on the basis of an understanding that there is a small proportion of us who are exclusively attracted to members of their own sex. And now we're told that's a form of bigotry and that that's a form of mental illness. We're being told the same things that homophobes were telling us back in the 1970s, but now it has the sheen of progressivism. Very, very sad. Um, and that's why, again, I've met loads of sort of gay activists coming out of retirement, dealing with this stuff, thinking we'd never have to do this again. But here we are. You know, we have, in, I think it's in Australia where women's only spaces are a lesbian bar would be criminalized certainly lesbian um, dating sites are criminalized now men have to be allowed in if they identify as women but that's regressive this is not good um but it's complicated isn't it like i say because of the language that describes it and because they position themselves as being the good guys i don't even think good and evil fits in here i think that too is another reductive binary i think a lot of the people who support gender identity ideology are really really decent people who want to be sure that they're looking out for the marginalized amongst us That's what, you know, and that's a noble thing. But unfortunately, in doing so, they're making life a lot harder for gay people and life a lot harder for women. And they're exposing women to the the further possibility of sexual assault by 
you know, decimating single sex spaces, all in the name of progress. Who'd have thought it? Mm. Another aspect of all of this is um, something that you point out in the book, this tendency of this movement to deny observable reality. So a classic example you give in the book during the BLM protest, a CNN reporter in front of a burning vehicle with the caption, mostly peaceful protests. And you write, quote, there is a power in preventing others from speaking what they know to be true. Talk to me about that dynamic. Well, that's really key. Um, You see this again and again is the outright flat denial of what we can all see is the case. You know, in George Orwell's novel, 1984, by the end of that novel, Winston's Winston is, is, you know, you know, the character Winston Smith, who, but who is eventually tortured in room 101 and and, uh, forced to acknowledge that two plus two equals five. And in the end, he starts writing it idly in the dust on a desk, just that equation, two plus two equals five. It's not that he's, he thinks I have to say this now, otherwise they'll unleash those rats on me again. But rather, he believes it now. And this is the, uh, the, the when you have a movement that believes that language constructs our understanding of reality so wholly, then that means that by describing something in a certain way makes it so. So when you describe a, a violent protest as mostly peaceful, then it is mostly peaceful because you've used the words to describe it as such. So that's the idea behind it. And um it's so dangerous, you know, even this idea of sex being a spectrum. Well, it's not. And no scientist, biologist, endocrinologist worth their salt will tell you that sex is a spectrum or admit that sex is a spectrum. But we, but we have leading medical journals now saying that, denying what we can see. You know, when we see uh, a news article talking about, uh, there was one recently, I think it was in New York, of, um, and it was on the BBC website. It was talking about a an elderly woman who had dismembered other elderly women and murdered all these old women, old friends of hers. And you read this article and you think, this doesn't sound like the behavior of an old woman. It just does. And that sounds stereotypical, but I'm sorry, there aren't many female serial killers and there aren't many elderly women. There aren't any, I mean, th- these things just never happen. And then you read it. And at the end, it sort of casually says, Oh, this person who, who now identifies as female. In other words, this is, this is a man. It's a man, but you're you, the article headline, the article content up until one throwaway line at the end has lied to you about what it is. We can all see the difference between men and women and we all know what that is and we all know that it's significant. But to be, we have to just pretend, we have to pretend that if biological males are in women's sports, they they don't have an advantage. Well, a a reasonably intelligent six-year-old knows that that's not the case. So we do do have to stand up for the primacy of truth. I mean, that's the key thing about this. That's the key threat here is that we have a, a group of people, the new Puritans, whatever you want to call them, these high priests who will have you punished through this process of cancel culture or whatever you want to call it, but certainly through intimidatory tactics, if you speak what you know to be true, that is a feature of all tyrannical regimes as well. You know, this is why tyrants, despots, those in power don't want to be criticized, often outlaw the criticism of the leader. It's the emperor's new clothes. We can all see the emperor is naked, but we're all too scared to say so. Well, we have to stop being scared. And I think we have to do that collectively. We have to be a little bit braver when it comes to saying what we know to be true, even if those truths truths are uncomfortable or can cause people harm, not harm, as in physical harm, but upset, emotional upset. I think the truth is too important to just surrender. Mm. 
And that brings me to what I wanted to just discuss briefly as we close here is uh, where we go from here. And you spent some time on that at the end of the book. How do we dig out of this? And you you write about not indulging the madness and and not capitulating, but you also write about striving to read opponents' arguments in the most charitable light and practicing humility, being constantly aware, you know, that that we could be wrong. Um, why are those two things so important to confronting this trend? I think it's really, really important because there is no point in attempting to to get anywhere to to draw ourselves out of this quagmire, this this insane culture war, unless we remember that we're dealing with human beings who are capable of rational thought. Even in Salem, if you take the, the lessons of Salem, those people were caught up in a hysteria for a little over a year, but they were able to come out of it ultimately. And they repented of it and they, they knew that what they had done was wrong. While they were in the midst of it, they couldn't see it. So I think just dismissing people is not helpful. Also, just assuming the worst possible motives. And I see this on all sides of the culture. Where, you know, a woman expresses concern for single sex spaces. She's called a transphobe. She's called hateful. Well, no. And, and I, don't, I don't think I've met anyone who would fall into that category. Maybe there are some uh, here and there who have an irrational hate of people who identify as the opposite sex. I'm, I'm sure those people do exist. I don't happen to know anyway, any, and I'm sure they're very rare, but I'm sure they probably do exist. But making the assumption that it is hateful strikes me as really unhelpful. I mean, similarly, you have gender critical feminists will often leap to misogyny. They'll just say anyone who is who wants to support the idea of gender identity must hate women, must be doing it out of misogyny. Well, again, I've seen lots of evidence of misogyny, I should point out, from, from certain activists. It's quite clear when, he, when they're sending sexualized rape threats to women. I don't see how that can be described as anything other than misogyny. But to assume misogyny of, on, from everyone on that side of the argument, that's really not helpful. And that's not going to get us out of this. What we need to do is sort of recognize that we all see the world. I mean, sure, the, the, the weird, screaming, hateful people we just don't we work around them we don't talk to them because those are not rational creatures who can be discussed you can't have the discussion with them but 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 just acknowledge that we the rest of us all of the rest of us however however hardened our opinions might be at present we're all capable of rational thought we're probably mostly coming from it from a place from a good place i think i think the tragedy of this is 99 percent of people in these debates think they're on the right side of history think they're doing good even when what they end up doing is bad so so but but i i'm a big believer in rational discussion and the capacity of debate to to edge us closer towards the truth the reason why these debates about systemic racism and trans issues and homophobia and all the rest of it feel so entrenched and tribal is because we just haven't been able to, able to have the discussions and and sit and look each other in the eye and remind ourselves that we're talking to to human beings. So much of this has been conducted through avatars online. Uh, I think civility is important. I think, I, I mean, I've come to the conclusion I, I I can't de-radicalize someone. If someone is screaming Nazi at me, if someone is screaming that there are a hundred different genders and anyone who disagrees is a fascist, I'm like, I can't talk to that person. There's there's, there's no sense in talking to that person. But that's not the majority of people. You know, um, I think most people, I still have a basic faith in humanity. I had a, a debate recently on my on my show here in the UK where, you know, I had a, a trans activist and a feminist sitting together and they had a sensible discussion. They totally disagreed on everything. Couldn't be more different. And it was robust. And that's fine. But it, no one was throwing insults. No one was 
screaming Nazi at each other or screaming transphobe or misogynist or whatever. That, that, it, it, and it felt like, even though obviously people aren't going to agree, it felt like we were moving towards a place where we could have the debates that we need to have. Um, and I just haven't seen that really happening. Um, mm-hmm. And that I think is the, the, a great tragedy. And I, so yeah, I, I, I think the way out of this is to work around the, the crazies, you know, don't, don't try and engage with in the way that I wouldn't try to, I wouldn't want to sit down with the KKK and explain to them why I think they're wrong about black people, because I think they're too far gone. There are people who can do that, by the way, Daryl Davis, the musician has de-radicalized members of the KKK and, and, and fantastic man. And uh, just to, I, I have nothing but admiration for someone who has the, the, the patience and the skill to do that. I do not have that. I, I'm not capable of that. So I will leave it to the people who can do that. But I'm not going to sit down with with people who I consider are completely immersed in this ideological mayhem. I I, I don't have the ability to, to, to talk to people like that. But I do have the ability, I think, to talk to rational people. And I think as long as we can keep hold of this idea that most people are still deep down capable of rational discussion. And if we go to them with respect rather than mudslinging, we might actually get somewhere. Well, that is a very hopeful place to leave it. And uh, I just really appreciated this book. I think it's a really useful book above just being a great read. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Dot com.